Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Carola Davis and host Erwin Keller. Welcome, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started. My name is Kira Epstein. I'm the program coordinator at the new school at Commonweal. I'm here today with our host, Erwin Keller, to welcome Carola DeRoy Davis to the new school. We're so pleased to co-present this conversation, exploring West Moran's history and radio communications with the Blanus Museum today. Thank you to Jennifer Gately and Eliah Hayworth for their help getting the word out about this event. I'd also like to thank the folks at Stenson Bellinas Community Fund and all of you for your donations in support of this series of conversations. You can also find and subscribe to get all of our recordings on SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Ken Adams is behind the scenes, as always, helping us with production. And he also brings us a special short video today about the work that he's been doing at Commonweal, helping to set up amateur radio operations with a dedicated group out here. Thank you, Ken. And now I'm going to turn it over. Erwin Keller and Carola DeRoy Davis, welcome to the new school at Commonweal. Thank you so much, Kira, and welcome, everybody. We have a lot of people in the room, and I know that word is spread among radio enthusiasts of all of all sorts and all ages, and really glad to have you here. Um, I'm very excited about this conversation um, because I know so little about radio communication and have always found it to be such an enticing, magnetic mystery. Um, so, Carola, let me introduce you, and then we can we can dive right in. Uh, so, Carole, I'm going to speak to you, so that way you can correct me on anything I'm getting wrong. Um, you were the collection manager, collections manager for the Point Reyes National Seashore Archives for 18 years. You curated and cultivated research and exhibits of the park's collections until your retirement just a few years ago. And this work blended your love of history, books, and the outdoors. Before that, you were an archivist at the Bancroft Library at University of California, Berkeley, while you were completing your MA in library science there. And before that, you were a bookseller. And before that, you were a farmer. This is the biographical <laughs> archaeology of Carola DeRoy Davis. Your main research interests are, if I'm right, the history of Sir Francis Drake's landing on Point Reyes, the Native American history of Point Reyes, and the history of maritime radio. You spent 16 years assisting the Maritime Radio Historical Society, a nonprofit park partner, which restored the wireless stations that we'll be talking about um, uh, and restored them to living history sites. In 2014, you coordinated a year long series of events and exhibits celebrating the 100th anniversary of the first transmission from Bolinas to Hawaii including an exhibit at the Bolinas Museum, uh, which is sponsoring today's co-sponsoring today's conversation. You're the co-author of Point Reyes Peninsula, Olima Point Reyes Station and Inverness, which is part of the America, Images of America, California series. That's the one I think we all see it when we, we travel, those sort of sepia colored um, paperback books that give history of particular, of, of sort of micro regions. Um, 
I think you are a kind of transmitter yourself. Uh, your calling is to gather stories before they are lost and deliver them to new ears. Um, I think I'm right about that. And you now live in and are Zooming to us from New Hampshire. So welcome, Corolla. What a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Well, we're here because of your curiosity, as you um, said. And um, I'm, I, I wanted to chat with you because a lot of people I've found um, don't know about the history of radio in West Marin. And it's, it's very, um, it's my passion to pass that on. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled because I've been connected with the Commonweal community for, for seven, eight years now. And, you know, I see the transmitter towers and I see RCA on the building that Commonweal sits in. And I see the old building number one, the, the ruin on the cliff. And, and, and they're, they're, they're marvelous and they're mysterious. So I'm wondering if you could start by just telling me what I'm seeing. What am I looking at? Well, the, the ground on which Commonweal now sits uh, was once a very large acreage. Um, and originally, um, it was a barren flat plateau, not a tree on it. And um, Marconi was uh, scouting for a place to build his new intensely powerful station that he wanted to cross the Pacific and finish the chain around the world of stations. Um, so communication go can go around the entire world and there had to be, you know, stations relaying to stations to make that happen. And the, the planning and the building took place in 1912. Um, it was a farm before that and a, a large 700 acre farm. And if you can imagine back in 1910, you know, communications were kind of limited to newspapers. Um, there was telegraph, but it had to be wired and it had to go from place to place. So it was rather limited. And, um, you know, the telephone was in the same, you know, it couldn't really reach that far. So the way people got information was pretty much uh, mouth to mouth um, as people visited each other and newspapers. So, um, you know, it was a dream of Marconi's to, as a child even, to, um, to understand electromagnetics. He studied physics in school and he was really interested in that. And his father was a, a large landowner and he, in Italy where he was born, and wanted his son, of course, to, you know, carry on the family business. He was the only son. Um, but he was just mad for the science of understanding electromagnetism. So he did little experiments at home and he finally got a wireless signal to pass across the table, then across the yard, then across further distances, then across the Atlantic. 
and you know, he, his idea was not popular. He could not get it funded by the Navy, by the post office, by any, um, European, but primarily Italy, where he started. But then England took an interest in him and he moved there. So from there, he had this dream of connecting the world. And, you know, like many 19th century men, he had these grand ideas, which have brought us to where we are now. Um, and so I think um, why he picked the site that you're on uh, or the common wheels on is because it had the cleanest, uh, the cleanest signal on the West coast. So there wasn't any pure interference. Now they had to build two stations. Uh, the one at common wheel was the transmitting station. And the first receiving station was in Marshall on the, on um, Tamales Bay. They had to do two stations because of feedback, because of noise. Yes. They had to be a distance apart wherever he set them up. And um, yeah, that was so they, they didn't interfere with each other. So maybe, I don't know, 20 miles away or so from each other, at least. <clears throat> I just have to take a moment just to, to honor the mind bogglingness of, of this. <laughs> um, we were talking beforehand and uh, Ken, our engineer today was talking about a conversation that he had with uh, Richard Dillman, who's in the room also about uh, Hi, Richard. <laughs> where Richard said, nobody actually understands how this works. Um, I'll, I'll, indulge for a moment in an old Jewish joke that I learned when I was a kid. That's exactly about this, about two guys walking along. And one says to the other, I've been wondering, how does the telegraph work? And the other one says, it's like this. Imagine a big dog. Its head is in Minsk. Its tail is in Pinsk. You pull the tail in Pinsk, the dog barks in Minsk. And the other guy says, oh, okay, I, I, I think I understand. So how does the wireless work? And the other guy says, same thing, no dog. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and that kind of, that, that's kind of it. That's the limit of our understanding, right? I can, I can kind of imagine something about the telegraph. I can kind of imagine breaking up a, a, an electromagnetic signal that's running a, along a wire. But take away the wire and it's just magic. Well, I think Richard Dillman's being a little modest because there is a lot of, of uh, engineering and, and different things that concepts that need to be learned to understand what he does and what everybody who can um, um, do wireless radio. And it comes out of um, Morse code, which was invented by... Um, by Morrison, the 18 late 1800s, using the telegraph key, right? That's what you're referring to, and just seeing that visually in movies and things like that. So, um, the Morse key was really the key to the first kinds of transmissions adapted for radio wireless and wireless happens by the magic and this is something that developed over time and how they could get the signal further and further that it the radio waves which travel at the speed of light 
go up and bounce off the ionosphere, which is a, a layer of our atmosphere, and can go down and and in that way uh, and be received. And in that way, Marconi um, proved that the because the Earth was round, it didn't prevent us from sending signals from one place to another, one side of the world to the other. And that was, uh, I mean, he was like the super Steve Jobs of his day, you know, because he 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 built a business, and that was one of his his real genius efforts to create this commercial system. Um, but he used the uh, patents. He, he had a lot of patents and stuff, but the patents of elements of being able to transmit from other people. And the first machines he built were these big, giant, I mean giant, um, if you've ever seen Building One out at, uh, behind Commonweal, that was the original building that was built by Marconi for these giant machines, which had to come from New York across the Panama Canal uh, and then sail up to San Francisco. And then these giant pieces of equipment were loaded onto these two schooners that made the trip from San Francisco to Bolinas. And I mean, this is just a gargantuan effort. Um, and then they had to haul them about four miles, partly uphill by oxen cart to the site of building uh, the radio. And it, it was the spark gap uh, method that was first used and the machines were loud and they were big and they had to have tenders. Um, so when you say it was the spark gap method that was used in those machines, were there different were there different systems? Were there different platforms? Um, was Marconi's genius sort of sort of taking taking well, yes. to his business? Mm -hmm. And like today with the evolution of computers and, and other forms of communication and we use now, um, he was sort of the grandfather of wireless. Um, there was wireless before the wireless most of us knew about. So they evolved over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they evolved over time. And um, and what's in the station now is kind of the, the last version of equipment to transmit uh, at Bolinas when the station closed in 1997. So it lasted... Um, you know, 80 something years. So it was a very viable form of, of communication for point to point, which is a land station to a land station. And later on, it became a, um, a coast station that could uh, go from ship to shore, which relayed messages to ships. And you can imagine getting on a ship before, you know, 1905 or 1910 and there was no way for for anyone to communicate with that ship until it arrived where it was headed for and you know many ships were lost and never heard from again so it, it was a uh, difficult how this changed the, the the culture of ocean voyaging um, and also the utility of ships the way ships could be used including the way ships could be used in war, which is often how technology develops, is through war efforts. Mm -hmm. um, 
But to be able to have real-time communication with ships at sea is really a remarkable leap. Yes, and Marconi's um, equipment was aboard the Titanic. So he had he manufactured equipment in New York in a in a factory, and uh, all of the ships started having these um, these sets that they can communicate to. Um, the land-based stations, um, and and Bolinas had an extremely strong signal, and its its goal was to reach Hawaii, and then for Hawaii to reach Japan. So he simultaneously built both um, the Bolinas and Marshall station, and two stations in Hawaii that were going to be the first transmission across the Pacific, and. The wars kind of um, also advanced technology, of course, and and it was a commercial enterprise. So we're not talking about people uh, in the beginning um, being able to listen in their home. You know, this was a commercial enterprise for sending news, information, weather. Um, companies would communicate with the ships at sea about, you know, where they're coming into port and what's going to be there and that sort of thing. So all industrial uses. It wasn't like in the beginning, Mm -hmm. public level user ship. Yeah. No home radio. Yeah. Not, not yet in the beginning. So, um, you know, the next phase, I mean, after world war one, a law was passed uh, during the war that, um, no foreign companies could own the communication system of the United States. And Marconi was bought out. He could no longer operate in the United States. And um, I, I don't know, you know, you, you think about all this history and, and I think about the history of the people, you know, what they went through Um how they, the teams of people that made all this happen. There wasn't only the radio station equipment, there was the antenna fields, which, you know, at Bellina's windy, foggy place, um, a lot of the time, they had to climb up um, 300 feet. There was uh, a test for one of the main riggers they wanted to um, hire and the company didn't want to pay him as much as they asked for. And they said, well, you come out here and watch him climb up this pole. So they put him in the bosun's chair and a mule pulled the the, um, rope so he could be lifted up to the top. And then he had to climb out on the cables and the wires to make a repair, you know, 300 feet up in the air. So and, and, you know, they they go up to maintain things, but often they'd have to go up during a storm or other times when, you know, uh, things went out because of the weather and the wind and so forth. So it, it was a pretty uh, difficult job. Um, sounding, imagining it. Um, so what happened after World War One was that um, the government decided to form RCA, the Radio uh, Communications of America, and take over Marconi's stations. And first, uh, during the war, actually, the Navy took over the stations. 
And when the war was over, this whole changeover to RCA uh, began. And, you know, Marconi wasn't there all that long, you know, from 1914 to 1920. So only six years. So RCA was a government initiative. It wasn't private, private enterprise. It was. Mm -hmm. And they also teamed up with um, innovators like General Electric and some other industrial um, companies that were needed to manufacture and do the things Marconi had done. And they had a new technology after World War One, which is the Alexanderson alternator, which there's only one left in the world that operates and it's in, um, I believe it's, it's Sweden. And um, they have a site similar um, to Bellinas, but they actually have one of the, I think the world's only operating Alexander's an alternator. So that, that became um, the technology for a while. What does what does an Alexander alternator do? Uh, it provides the energy and uh, the electricity to uh, power the transmissions. And it was a, it was bigger than the spark gaps, I believe. <laughs> and I hope of America, uh, RCA. Um, does um, Radio Corporation of America? Yeah. Um, so, was um, what happened to Marconi after RCA? Was he still involved, just not the owner, or was he out of the picture? Um, he was out of the picture in America. Um, and I'm not sure after the war how other um, other places in the world, because uh, at Chatham, hello Chatham friends, there's an album of um, the time when Marconi was building stations all around the world. You know, they were in the jungle, they were in, you know, really remote places to get a clear signal. <clears throat> so... I'm not sure after the war, I think, um, I'd have to, I, I can't really remember right now what he did after that. It's remarkable, the, the, the epic nature of the effort to, to connect up the world um, through communication. When you think about, you know, I look at, I look at those towers in Bolinas, uh, the, the transmitting towers, uh, next to Commonweal, <laughs> and they're astonishing. They're huge, and um, when I think about those getting built, however many miles apart around the world, so that there can be worldwide communication, the Marconi's vision was was that grand, was that ambitious, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. That uh, yeah, and he was, um, you know, once he believed in his idea, and um, his mother was a, a Jameson from Ireland and she, his father was Italian and she was related to the Jameson Whiskey Company, which is, um, had been established in Ireland for, you know, many hundreds of years. And um, the father-in-law loaned Marconi money to keep his enterprises going because his father didn't really believe in his dream. And um, when Italy kind of put him down uh, as his invention was not useful, 
he kept on, <laughs> you know, he kept on and he borrowed money and um, developed equipment. And um, eventually he was given patent number 7777 to, um, you know, patent his inventions. And there were lawsuits later on over certain patents. And I think uh, I do remember now that he went when he went back to Italy, he from America, he came involved in politics. He was a very famous, you know, icon in the world at that time. So, you know, he had different roles in uh, in Italy as a public figure. Um, I want to maybe come back. And this is all this is fascinating. The the life of Marco. <laughs> How this, how, how that kind of mind and that kind of uh, ambition then plays out. Um, I want to come back to ship to shore. Okay, because, well, that ties into RCA. Oh, great! So let's talk about ship to shore, and I want to talk. Uh, I want us to get to talking a little bit about the culture of radio, the culture of radio operators. Yes, the culture. The culture is something that is very important to radio telegraphers. They are very proud of their skill. It's a profession. And, you know, they call themselves brass pounders and um, uh, the people on the other end were um, sparks, the people on the ships. Um, and the current radio folks out at, out at Common Whale and uh, on Point Reyes Peninsula where the new receiving station was built, call themselves squirrels, radio squirrels. But it's a, it's, it's a language. They used Morse code and it was taught in the military and, um, you know, electrical engineering and those sorts of fields. And to be an operator, was to communicate with ships at sea or land stations. And they, every person had to use the Morse key of their choice. There were different kinds that were developed because the, the, the beginning they had brass, brass keys and they, the pounding of those to, to um, send out Morse code gave people a, what they call the glass arm, basically repetitive injury. And so uh, other types were invented where instead of going this way, they could go this way and other types of more comfortable keys. So that also evolved. Um, so the, the key is the, the hardware. That's the, the mechanism, the thing that you're clicking. Yeah, that's, that's the, the person to person. And, you know, they developed relationships with the men on the ships. I think all of them were men up until more recent times. And um, they, they were proud. The land-based side was very proud of their station in particular, which was in the beginning at Marconi's time, it was KET, but eventually KPH. And they were, when RCA came along, RCA was a big corporation even then. And the corporation was then sending all the updates of equipment, rules for how to behave, 
you had to take a loyalty oath. I mean, it was serious business. <laughs> and they expanded on the ship to shore. And in 1930, I believe, um, RCA hired David Sarnoff to um, principally take over the company in its many aspects. And he developed a, a branch, RCAC, which was the ship to shore division. Um, and I think because Morse is a takes an effort to learn, and it's like any language that you're not a native to, it's it's mysterious. It's you know the dots and dashes and the that is and the da das are are something that takes a lot of practice. And sometimes they could send up. Now this might be wrong, but a hundred words a minute which is a lot when you're doing the individual letters. So, um, and of course there's no recording of it, right? So the person on the ship receiving is transcribing in real time. Right. At a hundred words a minute. <laughs> yeah. So, and they could, you know, because they knew Morse too, they could just listen, but they did, you know, write down, you know, telegrams were sent. Um, even later on, telegrams were sent to people on board ships that were passengers. Um, they could receive mail and, you know, messages from home. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Carola Davis and host Erwin Keller. You mentioned to me that uh, that different Morse operators uh, would have their own hand, that they could recognize each other. That's right. That's right. I guess it's kind of, I, I equate it uh, with handwriting in, in a way. Like, it's, we all write the same words, but, you know, we have a, a little bit different handwriting. And maybe it's because our hand is, is related to both, you know? I don't know, but... Um, Operators could tell when they tuned into a frequency um, which operator they were talking to most of the time. Mm -hmm. And they had their own style, you know, just like people speak too. Some speak fast, some speak slower, you know, um, and all the mutations of how we express ourselves. But, you know, they, they were mostly keeping to the business of the day. They were keeping to the business of the day, but I, I also don't want to underestimate sort of what that, what that connection might have felt like. I think over this last year of isolation from COVID, I think we all have a sense of the you know, the, the sort of risky edge of isolation um, and can imagine like what that might have been like to be uh, on a ship in the middle of the ocean with no land in any direction and to be <laughs> able to and to be able to get word. Um, I, 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 you know, I, um, it's business, but there's also something sort of deeply human about. Yeah, it was a it was a revolution you know, as much as we have a digital revolution um, now that we all can relate to. And there were relationships that were made too. And when certain ships would come into port in San Francisco, for example, some of the operators from the land station and the ships would get together and um, probably go to a tavern and talk radio <laughs> so you know there there was real connections made between people and 
and it was more, um, you know, like person, the personalities of the people who were radio telegraphers were, um, unique, I guess, in, in a way that any group of people who work together, um, and have a specialty, they kind of speak their own language and have their ways of, um, communicating. So, I think, you know, that that was a big part of the, the human story, both on the land and at sea. Mm. And yes, you're right. I mean, this last year of of not being able to see people in person very much um, and being isolated. I mean, all this, the stations that were built were in very remote places. Um, Marconi invested a lot of money in a kind of luxury at his stations around the world where his powerful stations he built um, a hotel which is still at Commonweal and is now the the center for activities there um, it was it was pretty much a wreck when they remodeled it and that was that was good because it saved a lot of the integrity of the building and um and then they built cottages for the engineer and the station manager. They had their own cottages. So, so and those is, are the this two is cottages. Not quite the life of the uh, of you know nineteenth century lighthouse keepers. No, and they had um, a cook and a and a cleaner, and they had a tennis court. I don't. But it's kind of obscured on the landscape now, but you can still see remnants of it. Um, there and so they had exercise they had um i think they had a piano and a maybe a billiard table you know they had they were they were living okay you know and um some of them have families and they lived in Molinas, which was also really impacted by the the station choosing that site how how so what was Molinas like before this well it was mainly just a uh, a port, you know, from San Francisco, like I said, with the schooners, they brought lots of things to San Francisco, like the butter and cheese and hogs and other things that were the farmers. Um, and the, uh, because of course there was no golden gate bridge. Yeah. No, there no, <laughs> no, there no. no easy way to get the, the dairy products. Of That's right. County and so they would have to make these trips across the Bay and, uh, the first thing that was really needed there was uh, electricity in uh, to run to the Lena station, and they needed, you know, a, a good connection. So even today, like our our wireless things, we still have to plug them in and either charge them by electricity coming into our home or charge them with a battery. So. Even though it's wireless, you know, at some point it needs to be charged. And and so the electricity was brought over from Sausalito at, uh, over Mount Tamalpais. And you can imagine that endeavor as well. I mean, the roads back in, you know, 1914, when we barely had cars, you know, the city had some, but there probably weren't many out, out here. So there ability to um uh so some of the people who had families you know moved to the town of Bolinas and that was um 
that some of the farmers had jobs built helping to build the stations. So there was kind of an exchange between the community. And they were one of the first places in Marin to have electricity, if not the first, mm. uh, maybe on the o- other side of Marin. But um, and so that was a, that was a big change in the town. And um And then people moving in, schools, shops, other things were, you know, uh, affected by a a bigger population because it took quite a few few people to run the station. I'm curious about that. I mean, how many people does it take to run a station? You need operators. You need alternate operators. Um, Yes, there were many positions and um, Commonweal has a, a book that was created by um, uh, an employee at Commonweal early on. Mm -hmm. And he had gone, there were a lot of papers left in the facility and he'd gone through them. And there was a list of employees uh, during the time of Marconi. And I would say there were, maybe 30 people on it that worked full time. And, and then they were always coming and going. Some people didn't like the isolation, just mm-hmm. like lighthouses. But I think they, it wasn't for them, but they weren't all uh, telegraphers. They were, um, you know, like I said, the, the antenna um, crew, the maintenance people, the cooks, maintenance the- people, yeah. All those, all, all those folks. Burr Hanneman is wondering if it was Michael Rafferty, maybe, who... Yes, Michael Rafferty. I'm sorry, I couldn't recall his name. Yes, so um, he saved some of the early papers, and um, I took on the job while I was park employee as an archivist to archive all of the existing records um, when when I came there. I think I started in 2002. Um, I gathered up or left in the station all of the official records of what had happened, the blueprints of the station, the communication from the home front in New York and then in San Francisco. And, you know, it tells the fascinating tale of the of the business efforts. And, you know, sometimes they had employee strikes like in the 1960s. Um, There were many things that happened um, in the development over time. Um, how long did the, uh, did the RCA um, station operate? Until when? When did it? Uh, until 1997. So it was... And most of the action moved... Um, I, I didn't say this yet, I don't think, but after um, World War One, later on when RCA took over... Transmission went from long wave, which is was in Marshall, uh, and they had huge antennas there too. And if you've been to the Marconi Conference Center, that was the original um, receiving station that Marconi built. There's also a big hotel there and cottages and power stations and everything. So now it looks very different than it did then. It was just a little fisherman's cove at that time, and the train went right by in the 1800, late 1800s, so that was handy as well. Um, but then the shift to shortwave 
Yeah, then then they changed the the technology changed to shortwave, and they built a new, RCA built a new station, and they also built this building that Commonweal is in. That it's not built by Marconi; it was built by RCA. So they had they moved what equipment they needed to that new building, the new technology, and sort of you know abandoned the other. Um, building one original Marconi building. So they, so that, you know, operations were kind of um, trimmed down to the necessary um, components and people. And that's when the ship to shore really began flourishing. They abandoned building one for uh, technological reasons or because the, the cliff was arriving? No, it it was more because, yeah, it was more because of the technology. Um, They needed a new building. Yes. And, you know, the cliff on which the building, the original building sits is eroding away. Even in the last 20 years since I was around there, it, you know, uh, still eroding. And I guess because the National Park Service now owns that and, and leases it to Commonweal, but, um, you know, the park service is going to have to decide if that building is worth moving or saving or, you know, cause there, um, we took an inventory of all the equipment in both stations, um, I think in 2015 and there's still quite a bit of, um, I think there were 28 important artifacts in there from the Marconi era still. And they were mainly things attached in the building. And there's a giant um, transmitter in there called BL-10. And it it's it was kind of vandalized, and but the shell of it is still there. And it, it's quite impressive. Yeah, it's very beautiful, even as a shell. It's just a very beautiful... <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of action happening in the chat, and I, I want to b- just bring some of it into the okay. into the room. Um, uh, Burr Henneman also says that the, um, to his knowledge, the biggest category of workers were the riggers uh, uh-huh. who erected and maintained the antenna poles. So, um, yeah. and W A one E X A dash Mark Petruzzi. Uh, so I guess that's a radio handle. <laughs> Uh, said that uh, uh, in World War II, Chatham was a Navy listening station. Uh, so, Mark, uh, you're right. You're writing also from Chatham. He says we copied and located U-boats. Uh, the operation was run by Navy Waves. What is Navy Waves? Do we mean waves? Waves? I, I, so, say more about. That. I, I visited Chatham and. It's now um, a museum and a, they have a school for children who are studying the STEM program primarily, you know, how to build robots and all these other things during the summer. And the uh, main building is now a wonderful museum. And I actually met Marconi's daughter there. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> what, 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 what was that experience like? Well, it was part of the 100th anniversary celebration, and um, I went to, I, I was on the East Coast for another reason, and I was able to go to the to the main gathering, and she was there, and I 
got a seat of honor right next to her, which was wonderful. And wow. um, she got up and spoke about her father. She was the only child from his second marriage, Electra. So um, I, I don't know. What did he say about the Navy waves? Yeah, that's an interesting um, naming choice. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Paul's daughter, Electra. Um, I guess radia wasn't available. Um <laughs> Burr also mentions about the succession of technologies you were referring to, Corolla, um, when Common Wheel moved onto the Bolinas RCA site in the late 70s, the big room upstairs in the main building, which is 58 by 58 feet, was filled with tall banks of uh, obsolete transmission equipment. Mm-hmm. They used lots of radio tubes, some of them maybe a foot a foot long, and that equipment had, had been replaced by newer generations of equipment in the adjoining building uh, sometime around 1962. Uh, Dewey, your colleague, Hi, Dewey. Or Dewey <laughs> uh, oh, so waves are women in the Navy. That's what I was suspecting. Um, Dewey says that building one has, in his opinion, historic significance on an international level. It's too bad the cliff has eroded so much. It's true, the building is really teetering at the edge. Um, My hope was always that we could get a large amount of funding from some new tech um, companies in Silicon Valley to restore the building because it's, you know, millions and millions of dollars to do it. And it is an important um, I think it, it's on the National Register of Historic Places, and it's also qualified to be a National Historic Landmark, but um, it, it hasn't, the paperwork for that and the uh, impetus for that hasn't come yet. Um, while, while we're talking about the uh, equipment in the Commonweal Building and the RCA mm-hmm. Building, could you tell us a bit about the about the Marin Radio Historical Society and uh, and the work you've done with them over the years. Mm-hmm. Well, um, after Common Wheel cleared out a lot of what was in Building One, um, ninety seven, I believe, the stations had been when the stations closed. Maybe in nineteen ninety eight, Richard Dillman and his partner. Tom Horsfall formed the Maritime Radio Historical Society, and they are passionate about keeping alive the culture that we were talking about of radio men, the pride and the the things that they um, knew were the last of, like there's a lot of equipment in the stations that are the last of, and so... Uh, Their organization grew over time and um, the Park Service worked with them to fund projects um, like that inventory I was talking about and the processing of the archives and um, antenna maintenance. And it still is the biggest um, job maintaining those antennas, um, especially in some of the weather we've had more recently. So MRHS... And they continue to operate the radios. uh, And and I'll refer to them as MRHS because it's easier. (laughs) Um, They have recruited a number of specialists and people who have restored equipment that was, I mean, early equipment. And they've also... um, 
opened, well, not this past year, but they were open to the public on Saturdays at the receiving station, uh, which is on the way to the lighthouse on Point Reyes. You've probably seen the famous tree tunnel, maybe, if you're um, a local, um, and that marks the spot, and there's antennas there as well. And they um, uh, hosted visitors from all over the world who appreciated coming in and seeing them operate the station. It was done remotely from Bolinas, although there was a technician there and and um, the great Steve Haas. And, um, and so they continued for up until now, it's still going to partner with the park and to um, grow their organization, which is a nonprofit. And um, they have a wonderful website um, where all of the frequencies they broadcast on are posted. It's radiomarine.org. And I think that'll be in the... It's in the chat already. In the chat. Um, and you can see f- all the historic photos, uh, radio tales, um, some of their other projects, um, because this isn't the only one. But they were dedicated every Saturday to be transmitting um, currently not commercially but um as a as a living history site is still using as much as the original equipment as possible and people are fascinated to come and hear morse code they also have a frequency for ham or amateur radio k6 kph is the call sign and kph was was the famous call sign from ship to shore it had a certain tone to it. People had to, you know, dial in, you know, and, and then they heard the tone of KPH and it was, I've heard special recognized all over the world. Hmm. <clears throat> Are people still learning Morse code? Is there any context in which Morse code is still being used? I've heard that the, the, um, American servicemen of, of all um, of the country are not being taught Morse code anymore because we have other forms of communication. And so, um, you know, satellites and so forth. So I don't believe it's being taught there. Um, I know the Boy Scouts don't teach it anymore. And so it's, it's kind of a dying language. And that's that's something that's so important about the station now is that it keeps there are people all over the world that um, uh, will send messages to the station, say, on a Saturday. Both Gordon yes, and Rob. And also, yeah. yeah, in the ham community, there's also Morse um, being uh, exchanged. Um, so, yeah, so, so that's so. a way for ham, uh, ham or amateur radio to connect. And they've been out to the station on some of their big occasions to, um, set up their equipment and, um, ham radio is important for West Marin because in disasters like floods or, um, fires like last year um sometimes especially in the case of floods part of uh, west Marin was cut off up in Vernus way and and ham radio was the only communication available mm-hmm. so it's 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 still an important skill 
And some people communicate by CW or Morse, but others, um, you know, are communicating by voice. So mm -hmm. that's, you know, a very diverse people join ham for very diverse reasons. Um, there's a, a lot of chat going on about, about Morse code and about, um, about ham, about amateur radio or ham radio. And, mm -hmm. um, uh, Rob is saying Morse still has performance. Uh, uh, Rob, say more what you mean here. Performance difficult to achieve with digital methods. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can uh, put a little bit more into the chat about that comment. And uh, Burr is mentioning the PH in KPH. Uh, the call letters came from the Palace Hotel in San Francisco, where the That's right. was mm -hmm. located. Yeah, the KPH call sign originally belonged to um, another another station, actually a couple of different ones, and it went from um, the Palace Hotel until the 1906 earthquake when the Palace Hotel was um, just destroyed, basically. And then it moved to um, Green Street up in North Beach, and then it moved um, to Daly City. So all these different companies, there was a lot of you know, like our early computer systems, you know, a lot of people competing to uh, run their own stations. Mm -hmm. um, and so then it came from KPH uh, when Marconi brought it to San Francisco. He had a he had a um, a unit on Market Street in San Francisco where he could send telegrams and that sort of thing. And then he decided on West Marin as and when I say he, I mean his workers. He personally, I believe, I came to Marin to help site the, the stations, but I don't believe he ever came back. So the PH, KPH is a, is a very famous call sign, and it mm. did start at the Palace Hotel. So Rob Rollins in the chat is explaining that Morse code, while uh, simple is very good in um, weak signal environments, and that that brings us back to what you were saying about uh, what happens in in times of disaster. If if communication grids go down, how do we uh, how do we organize? How do we pull together? How do we communicate with each other? What is the role of amateur radio um, in um, in our resilience? And this, I know this is something that Commonweal is looking at. Um, a bit in terms of thinking through resilience, both globally, but also in West Marin. Um, and Ken, who's engineering today, uh, put together a, a video about some of this radio resiliency um, in West Marin. I'm wondering, Ken, if this might be a, a good moment for you to um, for you to offer the video, and then we can um, pick up talking about it uh, when it's done. Hi folks, this is Ken, KM6WIJ, and I'm just about on the final approaches out to Commonweal, the old RCA building, the Marconi transmitter location. We're going to show you a few things here in a minute. KM6WIJ is my call sign. I'm a general class licensed amateur operator and longtime audio-video producer guy for the new school at Commonweal. I'm Rob NZ6J. I've been helping Ken put the station together. My name is Jacob, 
KN6MPV. I work at Commonweal. Today we are out here in the old RCA building, home of the original Marconi transmitter location. The actual transmitter building, as I understand it, is a little bit farther back behind this building. We're out here today to show you some of the things we've been doing with amateur radio, both for our resiliency project, as well as general communication capabilities among the local community, the community of amateur radio hams, as well as longer range communication. Obviously, there's gain in this for me because it gives me a low noise side to listen to. We've got a wonderful station here and hopefully lots of people get to be able to use it. That's what it's all about. This is K6MLS. Copying you very well. Steve, are you on frequency? Yes, I am. Uh, W6STY here. M6WYJ, this is... I have a question for you, Steve, KB6HOH. What's your situation with the VHF repeater on TAM? Are you able to get into that? No, no copy either on 733 or uh, 250. I have gotten involved with the radio setup for a few reasons. One is that it's been a great way to connect with the history of the site and the legacy of radio out there. Another is that I think it's an important addition to our efforts towards local resiliency. Radio allows us to communicate with different parts of the Bay Area, different parts of the country and beyond. It has the potential to be a resource that's really helpful to our community here in, in times of need. I also come from a place of being interested in technology and, and how things work in general. And so it's been really fascinating to learn about radio equipment and radio waves and how different frequencies interact with the environment in different ways and travel from point A to point B. AI6EE, AI6EE, this is NZ6J at the Commonweal calling on 3610. How copy, Bob? I'm Roger, Bob. That's great. AI6CE, MZ6J, out. Zulu Radio Charlie for the Idaho QSO party. Thank you, thank you for the Idaho party. Whiskey 7, Zulu Radio Charlie. November, Zulu 6 Juliet. 5-9, Idaho, Ada County. Thank you, MZ6J, clear. Now, and hopefully we can 
Getting my technician's license was um, was really pretty straightforward. There's uh, a lot of great online resources, um, study guides, and now that online exams are more common, um, it really didn't take too much time at all. So I look forward to learning more about the system, more about the local radio community, and helping to maintain our radio at Commonweal. Okay, what we're doing today is showing how ham radio can connect to the internet over radio. So what we're going to do, we're out here at the Commonweal in Bolinas, and we're going to send a message onto the internet addressed to Ken's phone. So to do that, we go into this screen here on the Winlink Express client, new message, put in a subject here, and we're going to put this into the outbox. So this basically loads the message that we just created into the outbox of the Winlink Express client. So we can build up one or a number of messages in the outbox before we connect over the radio to the Winlink system. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up a session and I'm going to press start. And now the radio fires into action. We're transmitting to a site in San Francisco in the Richmond district. And we're actually um, communicating on 144.91 megahertz with this station. And that station is connected to the internet point to point. So we're not going through repeaters or anything. So basically what's happening is this message is, is being received at the Windling station in San Francisco and passed onto the internet. So we've received a message here and we just go into the client. It shows now that um, we've received a message and all we have to do is open it up. One unread message from, this is a reply, potentially from a Commonweal board member or staff remote. So what this means is that if Commonweal is cut off from the rest of the world by any wired method like Wi-Fi or telephone or anything else, we can contact members of the board through radio as long as we can connect to a remote Winlink station. Now in this case, the Winlink station is in, across the bay in um, the Richmond district of San Francisco, but if we go to other frequencies, it could even be in Tijuana or in Western Canada or in China. And that actually is a, a site that you can connect to that is itself connected to the internet so you can get that message out onto the wider world of internet. So if the whole of America is cut off, then by going through HF radio, you can get access to um, the internet from, uh, from the common wheel, regardless of the status of other facilities. So if San Francisco, someone in San Francisco wanted to use and send a Winlink message to us here at Commonweal, mm -hmm. could we then relay it further up the coast to, say, Sonoma County or Mendocino? I uh, know, can we hit Barnaby from here? Of course. So we, we can hit the node on Mount Barnaby and we can get down into Dillon Beach. Um, and we can also do what's called peer-to-peer -peer Winlink, whereby we connect without using the internet at all. So basically, I can connect from here to your home in Woodacre through Barnaby, and we can do peer-to-peer, -peer, uh, we can transmit messages without no internet requirement whatsoever. 
I remember quite well listening to the fire scanners uh, the night of the electrical storm last August that started all the fires, including the Woodward fire close to Commonweal and to where so many of us live. I know one of the biggest missions for this radio system at Commonweal is to be a part of a bridge to and a resource for the West Marin and surrounding communities. And I think we're very well poised to be able to do this. I think it's important that people be able to feel like they can respond, do something, be a part of a solution when oftentimes the multiple situations around us might seem hopeless uh, or difficult to uh, have any impact on. And it's inspiring to see the amount of energy and effort and enthusiasm that so many from the local amateur radio community as well as the emergency response communities have been putting into this project. So a big thank you to all of you who've helped so far and who will help in the future as we work together to build this system into a source of resilience for our local and regional and larger communities. 7-3. Leaving Commonwealth now, starting to rain. Hope we'll be able to show you a few things about the radio systems. And 7-3 for now, this is Ken, KM6WYJ, clear. Listening to a TNS conversation with Corolla Davis and host Erwin Keller. Thank you, Ken. That was gorgeous. Um, really and really, um, um, you know, I think a lot about. I think since we've been having the fires we've been having, and and um, and even the the pandemic that sort of. Uh, raises our adrenaline levels and our anxiety levels. I, I think a lot about um, what will happen if the grid collapses, what will happen if communications collapse. And this was very exciting to see that, like, you can, you're going to still be sending emails through your amateur radio, uh, through a link up with your amateur radio. And that uh, I'm having a, an emotional response to that of, of comfort. Um, I'm really, I'm grateful for that. Um, Corolla, what's what are your impressions? Is there anything that this raised for you around? Well, like I think I mentioned before um, that there, uh, you know, during times of disaster, especially that that communication uh, method is is just great. I'm so. Um, impressed that you were able to build a really good station. I know that back in maybe 2001, um, 
or so the Richard Dillman and uh, the radio club that used to exist, Amateur Radio Club in Point Reyes, uh, worked with the fire station in Point Reyes to install um, a unit as well. And so I've, uh, it, it's like you're covered in the south and the north with that two systems. And I, I'm pretty sure it's still in place. And I don't know uh, exactly how it's used, but uh, Richard would know. Mm -hmm. Um, this would be, uh, this might be a good, we have about 15 minutes ish left and it might be a good time to, if folks have questions they want to ask, uh, or comments that they haven't made, um, really feel free to put them in the, in the chat. I want to bring in a, uh, uh, a message that I got from a cousin of mine. Since, since we announced this, I've been hearing from more and more people <laughs> about their connections with radio and um uh, a cousin says uh my father as a young boy built himself a crystal radio uh and at eight, age 16 he took a test to be a radio operator which included morse code he signed a paper stating that if a national emergency ever occurred he would be involved until the emergency was declared over and so the day he graduated high school he was drafted into the navy was the radio man on a ship um, and continued until after the war was over because it was still considered a national emergency. Um, and uh, he had once uh, decoded a message that Japan had attacked Pearl Harbor. Um, so uh, uh, that is uh, her story, the story of her father. Um, let's see, there's some questions. Um, uh Taliesin says, uh, asks about conspiracy theories out there that this place and the current Coast Guard station in Bolinas um, have huge metal plates set underground. Have you have you heard any of these stories and where they might arise from? Um, I have, and um, I believe it's not a metal plate, but the the station is grounded by having a lot of copper um like almost a copper net built all around the building top of the building um to help uh interfere with interference and so there's you know a lot of copper um and it may be on the bottom as well i'm not sure but i know it is in the rest of the building of the station mm. um Rob is mentioning that grounding is super important. I, I, I imagine with the copper um, and uh, a CWX are saying there's still copper covered doors at Commonweal. Um, yes, <clears throat> there were a lot of, uh, you know, copper doors leading from the transmitter gallery or, you know, other parts of the station it was two stories. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of those beautiful, large, heavy copper doors are, are just beautiful. They're they're really um, impressive in in person. <laughs> uh, I should say that it turns out I didn't know this, but CW Extra is actually my husband, Oren. Um, I should have known that, I guess, um, as long as he doesn't have a radio handle. Um, Mary Abbott was wondering if Commonweal has a radio relationship. Uh, with the Coast Guard next door. And um, 
I think there was an, also an answer. Oh, yes, Ken is saying, not that he knows of, but Richard Dillman may know. So Richard, if you know something about that, please pop it in the chat. Um, oh, and Rob uh, Rollins is, um, again, about the grounding the copper is, um, is mentioning Faraday cages of copper isolate radio energy. Burr is saying copper screen and the walls of the big room upstairs, the old transmitter room. Yeah, the room upstairs has those, uh, has, I, I don't even know what those things are up along the top um, that are some holdover from the transmission equipment, but really look gorgeous. <laughs> they just, they have, the aesthetics of them is so beautiful. And the aesthetics is also something I just want to toss in here. I once got a chance to walk through the equipment um, in the RCA building and I felt like I was on a ship. There's something, uh, it, it felt like it was a, a communication room, a radio room from a ship transplanted. Um, and uh, there was something very excited, exciting about that, the materials and, and, the, and the machines. Um, and the design of the uh, Art Deco buildings, both at the new station in, on Point Reyes and the building at Commonweal now occupies, um, it was, uh, they planted all of the trees. Um, there, there were no trees on the Mesa before they came. And, you know, there's just a huge amount of trees now. And um they fall on the wires sometimes and that's problematic. So try to, you know, keep them trimmed back. Um, there's, um, grounding wire. Oh, for, for saying something else. Hi, Burr. <laughs> Burr is saying <laughs> that the RCA, RCA folks told him that in addition to the huge quantity of underground, copper grounding wire there's also a large copper plate underwater just uh, wow uh just offshore from the original transmitter building that's right i do remember reading about that um so it goes down the cliff into the sea and i'm not sure how that helps i'm sure one of the radio folks would know and i just i just have to call out the mrhs because um, they have done over you know, more than 20 years now, those buildings that are so important and um, so historic wouldn't be operating in any kind of way. They'd probably be sitting there moldering um, and uh, they have brought it to life, back to life. And it's so important for them to to uh, stay and pass it on to another generation eventually. Um, and I just, I have to show off one thing because it was given, we didn't talk much about tubes, but tubes, um, RCA developed first tubes, I think, and, and they um, came in all sizes and shapes from giant to tiny. And, and this is what kind of fueled the, the 40s, 50s, and 60s was the, was the invention of tubes. And so a lot of the equipment uh, ran on tubes, which was eventually replaced by transistors and into the world we know of now, digital. So um, I, I was given this at my uh, award, at my retirement, and I'm so proud of it. It's, <laughs> it's that from MRHS. 
Here, I'm sharing for a moment an image. Uh, I hope people can see this. This is, uh, these are some Yeah, that, that's one of these tubes. One of those uh, in place uh, in the RCA building uh, back behind Common Wheel. So thank you, MRHS. This is still, you know, means a lot to me. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Here, I can actually, if it's okay, I can actually sh show you a couple of shots that I, I took, pictures I took when I was there, which I hope was uh, okay that I did. I think it was okay that I did. Um, but um, just so people can see what I meant about it, feeling like being on a ship. So this is right in Bolinas. Um, and here this is the control room mm -hmm. um, where everything is tuned in and relayed back to the receiving station or received from the receiving station. And you can see also just the, the immensity of the equipment. Yeah, these are some of the older transmitters um, from the 40s and 50s, and a couple of them have been restored amazingly because they actually found the, the plans for them and had talented people, I think some from Silicon Valley, come and, and uh, repair them. And it took, I think, a year for one of them, and they just kept at it, and it's, uh, it's working. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see what else is going on here. Um, uh, Rob is saying, isn't the control room at Point Reyes, not Bolinas? These pictures are from upstairs in Bolinas. Yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, Oren would like to know, are there any antennas left from Marconi's days? or And where were they situated? The antennas now are, are newer, um, is the question. I believe there's one in the remaining radio farm out, out in Bolinas, um, but newer technologies also, uh, there were more different kinds of arrays built, uh, antenna arrays to, that were directional and uh, the remnants of those, I mean, they, they're still there um, and I think that's the only one Richard would definitely know. <laughs> so, um, and maybe not, I mean, there was a 300 foot metal pole there. That was the original pole. That was the highest one, but that was, uh, removed. Um, I, I want to maybe, uh, we just have a little bit of time left, but come back to you. <laughs> because, um, you know, was there anything in your, you know, in your youth that would make you think that this would end up being an area of expertise or, um, you know, archival interest for you? Like this would end up being a place where, where you would dive in and, and um, spend so much of your uh, intellectual and emotional energy. Childhood. Well, my brother... Um, I think from six years old was um, subscribing to electronics magazines and he was like the flux capacitor and, you know, all these new technologies that were coming out in the 1950s. And, but I, um, I was more of a reader. And so that had a big impact on where my career went. Um, and 
I, when I first started at Point Reyes in 2000 as the archivist and museum curator, I didn't know a thing about radio. And I, I, it took me a while to understand the concepts of the two stations and I started delving into the history and, um, you know, in, in, on the 100th anniversary, we had a series for three months of different activities. Um, and also, a, um, I did an exhibit at the Bolinas Museum, which was really well received. And I uh, borrowed things. We had things in the collection. Um, but I wrote, I wrote about the whole history. And I think um, a lot of it came together for me at that point. But I'm, I'm no expert, you know, I, I'm interested in the human story and I, I kind of understand how um, the electronics part works, sort of. Mm. <laughs> I did get an amateur radio license as well, so I guess I knew at one time <laughs> what it all meant. Yeah, yeah. And you're part of the human story of it now, too as are many of the people, the MRH, as folks that are in the, that are in the room at the moment. And that's why I, I was excited that you, um, your curiosity uh, invited, ended up inviting me to come and talk to people because it's a little known cultural resource in, in the park. It is in the park boundary and uh, it, it's something that's just a passion for me now to be able to uh, support and talk about. Maybe a, a last question here is um, there was this overlap period when RCA was still operating and Bolinas was changing. All the people that came in the 60s and 70s and the culture of Bolinas was changing. What was that, uh, if you have a sense, what was the, the what was that uh, that cultural change like? How did the RCA folks um, relate to the new people that came? Well, at the new station, uh, they were definitely not well received in the beginning, and they there were two floors in that station as well, and the point to point was upstairs, which the people that were there. And they had different equipment and, you know, different styles. And, and downstairs was what they eventually called the Den of Thieves. I don't know why that's the name, Richard, tell me. But um, they were a group of, of men. And the first woman, uh, Denise Stoops, um, became a radio telegrapher, the first woman for RCA to be a radio telegrapher and she had been in the coast guard and learned uh morse there mm. and she still lives in bolinas today mm. um and so that it was a it was a close-knit group um and eventually when the point to point uh left um well they tried to make remember those big satellite dishes it was kind of a short era of communication <laughs> those giant satellite dishes and that that didn't work out very well for RCA. So they just continued on with the ship to shore because it was still making money. And, um, you know, they always were worried about 
you know, when's the end coming? <laughs> and, it, and it did. Eventually, in 1997, Morse code was dropped as the standard in America for communications. So it was sort of like, yes, MCI took over RCA. It, there was a, a, at the end, like several stations that um, were sold to each other. Um, and MCI was the last. Mm-hmm close the station down mm. and the people who work there were so this den of bees it was so sad jack martini was running the station as the manager and he was a a really interesting and terrific guy unfortunately we've lost him but um he's you know that that dual kind of culture disappeared mm. it, uh you know, and just the Morse code was left shipped to shore. Corella, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for being a transmitter of this <laughs> history, the history and the lore and the excitement to, to new generations and, um, and joining us in this, you know, successor technology of your being across the country and we're able to see your- That is snow out my back window. I want you to know. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining us and sharing all of this with us. And thank you also- I appreciate being here. All of the the people connected with with radio in Marin County who are in the room and have been sharing their excitement and expertise um, in the chat. Yes, thank you so much. Erwin um, and Corolla, thank you for the conversation. And Corolla, thank you for offering your time here and for all you've done to preserve the history of this area. It's fantastic. Thank I'm putting, you. Yeah. I'm putting uh, the requisite links for donations into the chat because that's my job. <laughs> and um, I want to uh, just ask you to consider making a donation to either the New School or the Bonalinas Museum or both of us. And if you already have done so, thank you so much. It helps us keeping keep, keep these programs coming to you. And we hope you'll join us again next time. Erwin Keller and Corolla DeRoy Davis, thank you for being with us at the New School at Commonweal. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Corolla Davis and host Erwin Keller. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Jeremy Cohen. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.